We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash lawless. Just go to Indeed.com slash lawless right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed com slash lawless. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Getting engaged is a moment worth cherishing. A one-of-a-kind ring that you design at Blue Nile can help your love sparkle. Just choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Finding the right engagement ring can be nerve-wracking. At Blue Nile, you'll have the expert guidance needed and a diamond guarantee that ensures you're getting the highest quality at the best price. Cherish all of life's moments and save up to 30% at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Survivor 46 is here and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. And we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. Hello, Sunshine. I'm Alexi Lawless, and welcome to the State of the Union podcast, where we look at the beautiful game on and off the field through the lens of red, white, and blue colored glasses. This week, uh, we'll be talking about the Champions League craziness of the quarterfinals, uh, and we'll look ahead to the semis. Uh, we'll t- be talking about MLS's newest title holders. Uh, we'll be talking about uh, let's see, some Inter-Miami news, Weston McKinney, fishing, and so much more. But first joining me, as always, my friend, my colleague, my guiding light, David Mossy, a soccer savant and a Fox soccer researcher and writer extraordinaire. Mossy, how are you on this? We're recording this on Sunday, August 16th of the year 2020. I am doing well. It is very hot in LA. Uh, so I've been sweating up a storm the last couple of days. Um, but uh, I have an exciting day ahead of me after we're done taping. Uh, I am covering a Liga MX uh, match, Santos Laguna against Atlas. It will be Max Bretos and Warren Barton on the call. I have not worked with Warren Barton in several months, so I'm looking forward to that. Nice, nice. Yeah, you're right. It is a blazing hot, not just here in Los Angeles, uh, but all across California and across the country for that matter. So I hope everybody is staying cool uh, and uh, safe, you know, with the uh, fires and the potential fires out there. Watch anything interesting this week, Mossy? I did, actually. Uh, I finally watched the Nicholas Anelka documentary on Netflix. Have you heard about this? Yes, I have heard about it. I have not seen it. Uh, I recommend it. It is very interesting. Uh, Listen, it is not Diego Maradona compelling, but it's uh, he's a guy who's had an interesting career, very talented French striker, uh, but a bit of a wasted talent. He had a turbulent career, uh, switched clubs a lot, played in various countries, and uh, also had a very turbulent international career culminating with that episode in South Africa, the 2010 World Cup, and they devote a lot of time to that in the documentary. Uh, and yeah, it's a story for me of 
a young player who just rushed things along too much. He, he broke in at PSG at 16 and by 17 was already unhappy with his playing time and forced a move to Arsenal, which seemed crazy to me. And then he goes to Arsenal and after a rough start actually emerges as their star striker is scoring big goals, helping them win uh, FA Cup titles, Premier League titles. And then two, two years later, decides he wants to go to Real Madrid and says that it's time to move on to a bigger club. And that was a terrible move, in my opinion, because Wenger was the perfect manager for him and he was developing nicely. And so and then he had issues at Real Madrid and never quite recovered from that. So uh, to me, it's a story of just a young player who just tried to rush things too quickly in his career and didn't let things play out naturally but you know hearing his side of it is kind of interesting so yeah i recommend it you should definitely watch it. nice i'd like to check that out as i would also like to check out the uh the new um uh, what is it called uh ted lasso uh thing from uh <laughs> from nbc uh for those that don't know when nbc first got the rights here in the united states for the epl part of their marketing campaign and promotion was you know a little vignette with uh, Jason Sudeikis of SNL and, and film fame playing a, <laughs> how should I explain this to you? M many of you know, but maybe uh, some of you don't know, an American, former American football coach going over uh, to Europe and immersing himself in their football uh, and obviously soccer and hijinks ensue. They were very small little Saturday Night Live skits and so now we come to find out that a full series has been born out of this. And I'm, I'm very curious to see what it is. So far, a couple of people that I've talked to have given it good reviews. Uh, the question I, I had when this came out was, number one, is this a situation where it was better as a two and three minute type of skit? We have seen plenty of SNL types of things that have gone on and haven't really worked in long form. That was number one. Number two, is it laughing at us uh, or with us when it comes to the soccer community? Because you know how uh, insecure we can be and sensitive we are when it comes to it. But so far, uh, like I said, everyone I talked to has been uh, been very, very good. The other thing that, and, and we've talked about this, Mossy, is that scraping the bottom of the barrel, what ends up happening is you go, you have your go-tos. My wife walked into the room the other day and, and just rolled her eyes and turned around and walked back out because she saw me watching The Verdict. Uh, the Verdict is a... Uh, uh, in my estimation, the best movie ever made. I love it. It stars Paul Newman. It's a courtroom drama. If you watch it, you will, you will see and hear that it has absolutely no music. Um, and I just think it's one of the best done movies uh, that you will ever see. I will, I will die on the verdict hill. Paul Newman, and I think I've talked about this before, he acts even out without saying, he acts in the way that he breathes in this film, because I said there's no soundtrack, everything is heard and seen. It's just a masterpiece as far as I'm concerned. But, but I'm going back and, and continuing to watch things that I, that I love and make me, feel, make me feel good. And my wife knows that this is, this is a film that I will watch anytime, anywhere. I will stop what I'm doing. It's, it's like the, the Shawshank type of uh, scenario for me if the verdict is, uh, is on. Anything else uh, tickling your fancy out there, Mossy? No, that's it. All right. Let's stop talking about uh, that kind of stuff and get on to talking about soccer because there was lots and lots of soccer this week. And we're just going to, you know, jump right into it when it comes to this week. It was a uh, smorgasbord or a, uh, just a buffet of Champions League uh, with the, uh, the four games all in a row. Each one, would you agree with me, Mossy, had something to sink your teeth into in one way or the other, right? I mean, it was pretty good, pretty good week. 
Absolutely. I loved it. We do know, obviously, that this is in the, uh, the Portuguese bubble, if you will, and therefore they are single games. There's no, there's no home team, uh, as opposed to normal times when it would be a home and away type of affair. Uh, there are those out there that are saying that because of that, it's actually making it that much more appealing uh, and dramatic. First, you, in, in big picture stuff, do you think that that's just us being desperate for soccer and desperate for Champions League? Or do you actually think it has been having an impact and a positive impact on the actual play? Because it's just one and done. No, I really enjoy this format. It's got that World Cup feel and, dare I say, an NCAA tournament feel to it. Uh, in Ooh. fact, I had somebody on Twitter who took the top 64 best clubs in Europe this season and put together this whole NCAA tournament style bracket and sent it to me, which I thought was genius. And it got me thinking about what a tournament like that would look like. How um, dare you? Now, how dare you, Mossy? How dare now, you? I've already said there's no chance of sticking with this format. We, well, because we it's America and giving clubs a chance to host Champions League matches. So I mean, they uh, wouldn't be caught dead doing something that originated from uh, from America. Right. I mean, that's 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 a that's a no go. That's a non starter right there. It has been interesting. I do think that it's a one off, like you said, from a number of different reasons. One, tradition, and two, just from a practical perspective in terms of the money. All right, well, let's 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 dig into it. First one came along, uh, plucky old Atalanta and uh, and PSG. It, it the little engine that could the Cinderella story. And by the way, uh, Atalanta. And you you and I both know, having worked over the last many years, especially when. Uh, when we were doing uh, Europa, uh, that the rise of Atalanta should not necessarily be viewed in surprise. It should be applauded uh, and wonderful with what they are doing with much less than, than many other teams out there. But this has been methodical and this has been uh, something that has been brewing for many, many years in terms of the quality of this team, not the elite level, but you always knew that you were going to get something special, both from a competitive side and from a, um, a stylistic side. And so it's nice to see them in this type of rarefied air. And for a lot of people that maybe don't watch Serie A or haven't watched them over the years, develop into this to be exposed and to, uh, and to give them the respect that they deserve. But the, uh, the trip uh, and the, uh, the magical pathway that they were on finally comes to an end, but not without a, uh, a, a, just a, an incredible game and obviously an incredible comeback when it comes to PSG, who ultimately won this uh, two to one. General thoughts first in this game. Yeah, hats off to Atalanta. Like you said, a great story, great season, heartbreaking defeat for them. Um, they were minus uh, Joseph Ilicic and then Papu Gomez had to come off injured early in the second half. So they weren't able to put their absolute best foot forward in this game. But you saw signs, at least in the first half, of what's made them such a fun team to watch all season. And they thought they had done enough. Uh, they could see the finish line, and then it was ripped away from them at the end. So uh, disappointing, obviously, for Gasparini and company. But uh, no, I echo everything you said. Uh, it's been a great story this season, very refreshing. So they have nothing to be ashamed of. All right, before we, we, we turn to PSG, which I think is, in this case, even more of a story, do you think that Atalanta kicks on in terms of I mentioned this is what they are, and what they are is punching above their weight. But do you think that this injects anything for them to be more than they have been going forward, or is this a blip? No, I think they're going to be able to hold on to most of their guys. This is not a Monaco of three or four years ago case where they have all these 
exciting young players that you know the Super Clubs are now going to pick apart. Um, they've assembled a collection of guys who are good players, but not the types that Super Clubs are necessarily falling over themselves to sign. So I think if they keep Gasparini and keep uh, this nucleus intact, there's no reason why they can't come back and be a very good team again for the next couple of seasons. Okay, so let's turn to PSG and, you know, the, uh, the manager watch uh, is always fascinating. And so do you think, given what Atalanta is and given what Atalanta isn't, and I guess what, given what PSG is and, necess- and is trying to be, if, if PSG had lost this game, you think Tuchel would be out? I think there's a very good chance. And he clearly thought that because he was very nervous in the days leading up to this game and already uh, preparing the excuses and talking about how they've only played two competitive matches since March and the absences they had, Di Maria suspended, Mbappe on the bench, Verratti out. And you know a team is banged up when even the manager is injured. You saw him with a big cast on his foot there, and he couldn't really jump around as much as he normally does. Uh, so that, that, <laughs> that was it's been a painful last few days for him, both literally and figuratively, um, getting ready for this match. Uh, but yeah, he gets to now breathe a sigh of relief for sure. Well, I think it highlights something that you know we've talked about and was on display, and we're going to talk about Barcelona later, but... The, the reality of these super clubs in terms of what is deemed a success and the, the ultimate goal and what they are really fighting for in that elite and, and rarefied air and, you know, league, uh, league titles or, or, uh, or domestic t- t- titles really for a lot of these clubs, I don't want to say they mean nothing, but, there is, we talk so much about this potential of a super league and we already have it in terms of the way that we view some of these, uh, some of these teams, but ultimately they don't ask how they ask uh, if, and PSG finally uh, got it. Uh, they left it late 90th minute. And the, what was it? The 90, 93rd minute Marquinhos and then Chupo Moting, uh finished. How they up. drew it up. Marquinhos and Chupo Moting. With right. Them. Exactly. <laughs> I want to talk, I want to talk about uh, your, your, uh, your countrymen. Neymar. Yes. Okay. Believe me, I have a lot to say. About I know. I know. So let me just let me just say say this. There are those that um, you know when Neymar was playing in Spain, he was on their radar much more so than it is now. And it's not as if he he went to PSG and was forgotten, but but I get the feeling that this was a a reintroduction and a reminder to everybody about while he is you know, at times maligned for his personality or the, the diving or any of that, when it really comes down to is that he is one of the elite players and one of the finest that we have ever seen. And I think that this was a perfect example of how he can take over a game and do things that very, very few people can do. I thought that this was a masterpiece but this was this was something to behold and for those out there that needed reminding he reminded everybody about why we hold our breath when he is on the field because of the magical things that can happen listen um soccer is a sport uh where there's a high level of subjectivity when it comes to assessing players performances Uh, honest people can completely disagree about whether somebody had a good game or not uh, but it's further complicated with Neymar because people bring so many biases and prejudices into the discussion. And so it's always fascinating to see the reaction uh, to any of his games. And this was a tricky one because he did have two horrible misses in the first half. 
but he had an absolutely brilliant game otherwise. Even the chances he missed, it wasn't like chances that the team created for him that he squandered. It was chances he created all on his own. For the first 60 minutes of that game, he had absolutely nothing to work with. That was a very pedestrian PSG starting lineup. They essentially had four center backs on the field with Marquinhos playing in the midfield and Tilo Carrera playing at right back. They had a midfield three devoid of any creativity with Marquinhos, Gay, and Herrera. They had fullbacks that offered nothing going forward. They had a very static center forward in Icardi, and they had Pablo Sarabia, a guy who's not going to stretch a back line. And so I've criticized Neymar in the past for in big games developing this hero complex and trying to do it all on his own. But in this case, it was out of necessity. I mean, I feel like if you took Neymar off the field in that first half, I'm not sure PSG would have crossed the halfway line with the ball. And instead, he created chance after chance. I can't remember the last time I saw a game where a guy created so many chances out of nothing. I can't remember the last time I saw a game where a guy dribbled past so many opponents. In fact, he set a Champions League single game record for dribbles completed. And the analytics crowd went nuts over this performance. I read so many articles the last few days. Ryan O'Hanlon wrote a great one trying to put into statistical context um, how great a performance this was. And that was the overwhelming consensus, to be fair. Even on CBS, Carragher, Roberto Martinez, Alex Scott were all gushing about the performance. All the Univision guys were gushing about it. My dad said he saw a replay of the game later on with a world feed with Martin Tyler and Stuart Robson. They were gushing about it. Reading all the newspapers afterwards, the French media was gushing about the performance. The Italian media was gushing about it. The Brazilian media was gushing about the performance. The Spanish media was gushing about it on Twitter. I saw everybody from Rory Smith to Sid Lowe to Ian Dark, but you still come across some dissenters, including Peter Schmeichel, who was on this anti-Neymar tip all day on CBS from the pregame show on and kept trying to fight this narrative that aside from the two misses, he had had a great game. Schmeichel said at one point to Kerrigan, Roberto Martinez, I don't know what game you were watching. Neymar was terrible. And it's like, no, what game were you watching? And it's just amazing <laughs> that there are people, and there are a couple other media types that tweeted some stupid things after the game that I'm not even going to mention them. But it's just there are certain people out there that are so consumed for hatred towards this guy that they just can't get past it and properly analyze his performances. It's, it's remarkable. I, I think in the modern game, we have, we have come to um, not despise, but disregard or look down on a much more romantic individual performance. I mean, I, I, I lament the fact that there are so few players that will get the ball and first and foremost look to take players on and multiple players. And time and time again, it was like, it was like a, a, a Western gunslinger, you know, just right in the middle of, of the town with everybody looking, everybody knowing exactly what was to come and it didn't phase him in the least. And he stood everybody up and he said, I am going to beat you. So much so at times, I mean, it, 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 though, you know, he had a bunch of different nutmegs and stuff, but the one, I can't remember who he stood up, but it was as if he wrote it down on paper, told everybody that was watching, I'm going to put this through. And not, I'm not even gonna put it through with any type of sleight of hand, except we all know that the sleight of hand is the body movement and it went just perfectly through, I mean, and then, and also something that while his dribbling certainly gets and should get plenty of attention, you know, the, the passes that he was making and yes, he missed, and yes, he missed a couple of uh, breakaways that you would expect him to finish, but that he did that and still the majority and the overwhelming majority of people are recognizing this for the class that it was says, uh, says a lot about him. Now, has he redeemed himself in the eyes of the world? Because we know that he's been through an up and down and, you know, I mentioned the, the diving and, you know, there's, there's a lot of different camps, but I do think he 
people have been less willing to give him the benefit of the doubt over the last couple of years for his behavior on the, on the field. But you know what? If you're going to take on players and multiple players, you're going to get hit. And he got fouled plenty and plenty of times. Even, even I thought the referee le- at, at times, he probably could have clamped down a little earlier with, uh, with, with yellows. And he was, he was a little benevolent uh, for my taste, because if you do have a player that's beating players uh, on a consistent basis, and there is that cynical aspect of defending, you got to make sure you recognize it and you dip it in the bud immediately uh, when, when, you, uh, when you can. All right, so great performance by Neymar. Mbappe come, uh, comes in and he's involved in, uh, in, the, uh, in the goal. So they got by this. I mean, should it have been a hurdle? It's still, Atal- it's still Atal- Atalanta, but they got by. They did what they needed to do. And it was coming because Atalanta did a, a bend but don't break type of thing there at the end, although they had a couple of opportunities. But for the most part, they knew the onslaught was coming and ultimately they just couldn't withstand it long enough. Uh, what else uh, to say about this game, Asi, before we move on to the next one? Well, yeah, I mean, you, you said a lot there. I agree with all of it. Uh, a couple of things. Uh, Johan Cruyff, who was a proponent of a philosophy, a tiki-taka philosophy that we all associate with passing and moving the ball around quickly. He was always the first one to say, the greatest weapon you can have is a player that can beat his defender one-on-one. And that's, that's still the, the best way to unlock a tightly packed defense. So even guys that think the game on that level, Cruyff, Guardiola can sort of appreciate, as you mentioned, the, the, the value of having a player that can do what Neymar can. And yeah, on the whole diving thing, he's even gotten better in that regard. And you saw him in this game... Uh, getting fouled and having players pull on his jersey and still fight through it and try to stay on his feet, even to his detriment. Late in the game, there was a play where he went on this spectacular run down the left wing, beat like three guys, and one of them just basically tackled him as he was going past him, and he stayed on his feet, and the referee played the advantage, but then when he couldn't get past the next guy, I expected the referee to then go back and give him the foul, and he didn't, which was bad refereeing, in my opinion. But so there you see a case of him getting penalized for staying on his feet. So you kind of see why players sometimes, you know, it's a bit tricky in those situations. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I echo everything you said. Absolutely. And this, and this, keep in mind, is being done in 2020. The, the, the image of a player just getting kicked and and fighting through and rolling and getting fouled i mean that's like stuff out of victory the movie you know where pele is just getting hit and all that kind of stuff that's the type of stuff that maradona used to go through uh when back in the day when they didn't protect players and yet this is this is happening and we as i said there's not enough people look i'm not saying that that christian pulisic is neymar but christian pulisic is somebody who likes to take players on. And that's part of the appeal when it comes to a player. And, and let's be honest, it doesn't matter where you're from, those are few and far between out there. And the modern game, to a certain extent, has, has not shoved them to the side, but devalued those type of players. But you're absolutely right, Mossy. A, a, you know, a coach or a manager can only put the players in those positions. And ultimately, if the answer, and to, to go back to the movie Victory, if I do this, 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 this goal, I mean, there's nothing that you can do. You can tell your players you got to defend or you need to double. But ultimately, if you have somebody like Neymar who can beat you once and then beat the next player coming in, that, th- there's, there's no tactical type of approach there other than to kick it. Absolutely. All right. So let's see if you can continue it now, right? You're only as good as your last game. Certainly his last game was good. Uh, and now they go on. Uh, the other game, uh, before we take a break, and then we'll go to the other side, Leipzig versus Atletico. And look, uh, I'm not going to stand up and sing the national anthem or anything, but this was a, this was a good day for RB Leipzig. Uh, and this was a good day for America. 
And this was a historic day because uh, for those that watch the game, we know that um, an American in the form of Tyler Adams, who did not start the game, but came in as a substitute, ultimately ended up getting the game winner. And there's no, I don't know if there's debate, but there was a lot of talk immediately about how this was the most historic goal for an American male player playing in a club situation in a international club uh, tournament setting. Obviously, quarterfinals to send your team into the uh, the semifinals. So congratulations to him. Thoughts in general uh, about this game? Well, first of all, Tyler Adams, there was an undercurrent on Twitter of people saying, U.S. fans are overreacting to what was ostensibly a kind of a fluke bounce, more of an own goal. And, and my reaction to that is they're not celebrating the goal in and of itself. Tyler Adams is not on the field necessarily to score goals, but they're just celebrating a young American who's so talented and such a good kid and has worked so hard and has dealt with all these injuries and has put himself in the position to even be on the field in that moment to be the beneficiary of a fortuitous bounce. And so I had no problem with the reaction on Twitter, I think. Tyler Adams is terrific and, and U.S. fans should be absolutely proud of his accomplishments. And, and it was great to see that. Uh, so uh, that, that's my that's my response to that. Um, yeah, do you want to say anything about that before? Yeah, I move uh, on? So, OK, so if if you are poo pooing it or you can't find the joy and the celebration in Tyler Adams scoring a goal in that moment and what it means and the significance and the historic significance of it, then you got problems. OK. And, you know, I'm going to celebrate the hell out of it and congratulate him. It was, it was a wonderful moment for American soccer, for American soccer history. And it was one that we should definitely all feel more than comfortable taking pride in. But I will say this, and, and to your point about who Tyler Adams is as a player and as a person, I, I think that this, that this goal, as big and monumental as it was, I think it's only a small piece of what makes him him great and what is going to continue to make him great and even greater uh, when it comes to his value f either for club or for country because a lot of this stuff is how we look at it relative to the uh, U.S. men's national team. At every single level, he has excelled, okay? And he is a, a wonderful case study and template for a pathway that American soccer and in particular Major League Soccer wants to shine a, uh, a light on. He has shown he's a winner. He's shown he is a leader. He's shown that he has uh, the dedication, like you say, to get back, even though you know he had a, uh, an injury challenge over the last year. And you combine that with just a really great personality and a maturity beyond his years. And I think that we are, and this is nothing new because I've said this before, I think we are looking at the true Captain America for the United States men's national team for, uh, for years to come. So I was so happy for him. And he didn't shy away about the fact that, you know, it might not have been going on net, but you know what, you, like you said, you put yourself in that position to be able to hit that shot and, uh, and good things happen. And congratulations to him. Now, this was all done without uh, Timo Werner, who we know has, uh, has, has moved on to other pastures, whether they're green or not, we don't, uh, we don't know. But that says, uh, that says a lot. The question as to rust when it comes to the uh, Bundesliga teams, I think that that was pretty well dispelled. And we'll talk more about, uh, about Bayern Munich later on. But 
they did not miss. Uh, they did not miss a beat. Now this wasn't this wasn't the perfect game from RB RB Leipzig. Jao Felix Felix came in uh, and did what he does as a young phenom and came in and earned not only earned the penalty but also uh, finished the penalty. You know the MLS influence, whether it was as we just mentioned Tyler Adams or Angelino, former uh, NYCFC player. This was you know this was a fun game to watch for a lot of different layers out there and. Um, and I'm so happy for, like I said, for Tyler Adams and, and for American soccer. And if, if you don't want to celebrate it, either because you don't care about American soccer or you're not American, then fine, go ahead. You can find something else. But we are going to trumpet this because this was a, this was a wonderful moment. Uh, listen, Diego Simeone is uh, a great coach who's had a lot of success. And nobody's asking him to become Marcelo Bielsa overnight. Uh, but, you know, we create these binaries where you're either an attacking coach or a defensive coach, and there are shades in between. And there's been this feeling in the last few years that if only he could take what's good about this team, the, the discipline, the toughness, the defensive solidity, and without sacrificing any of that, could sprinkle in a bit more expansiveness, uh, that would be the missing piece for them to get to that next level. And he's aware of that because they've spent a lot of money the last few years on creative players, but he can't get the most out of those players on a consistent basis. And so he ends up retreating back to his tried and tested formula. And this game was kind of a microcosm of that. Uh, they have, as you mentioned, Jerome Felix, who is a transcendent talent. And, you know, you got a close-up look at Jerome Felix. I know this feels like eons ago, but in the MLS All-Star game That's last right. year. That's right. And yeah. they spend 120 million euros on him. And Simeone, all season long, has not been able to get the best out of him. He's played him out of position. He's yanked him in and out of the lineup. Um, and his influence has waned to the point when, when the biggest game of the season rolls around, he's not even a starter. But lo and behold, uh, they're losing in the second half, getting outplayed. He brings him on. And for like 10 or 15 minutes, we get a glimpse of what this Atletico team could be when you have a lineup with João Felix and Carrasco playing behind Diego Costa, midfield of Coque, Saul, and Marcos Llorente. And they were on the front foot and attacking. And as you mentioned, Juan Felix was on fire, nutmegging people left and right. He earns the penalty. He converts it. And you think, all right, they have all this momentum. Now they're going to push on and win the game. And instead, because their philosophy is that they're only proactive when they absolutely have to be, uh, I felt like even at 1-1, they kind of instinctively dropped back a little bit again and let Leipzig reassert themselves. Uh, and then obviously they end up getting the late winner with Adams. And uh, I don't know, I, there's been a lot of criticism of Simeone in the last couple of days and a real sense that, listen, he's a great coach, but if you're going to get over this hump, you're going to have to loosen up a little bit, be a bit more flexible in your ways. There's no way that a kid as talented as Jerome Felix can not start a game like that just because you failed all season long to get the best out of him. Do you think that this is, is more of a, of a result of it's situational in that he, even if he wants to change, he can't because this is the identity and albeit one that he has helped to create. And therefore the only way for him really to change is to be in a different circumstance in, in, in that. I, I think it's, I think it's hard if you have built your entire mythology, I mean, of, of who you are, the way you look, the way that you play relative to one specific club to then try to make it something that, hasn't been and in your mind or maybe others minds doesn't want to be or can't or can't be I mean is this is this the time is this the time for him to go someplace else or do you think that he can actually be the person that you're describing here uh and continue at Atletico? it's a great question yeah I I, I wonder if they just have established such an identity there over a period of many years that it's hard to to modify it at all 
Uh, I know, you know, when, when, when they knocked out Liverpool in the round of 16, Jurgen Klopp after the game kind of expressed some frustration at the way Atletico play and, and everybody accused Klopp of being a sore loser. But the point that Klopp kept making was look at the players they have. It doesn't have to be only this way. They have lots of talented players that I would kill to have on my team. And so the pieces are there. They've gone out, they've spent the money to bring him in. And, but you're right for whatever reason, it's a mental block with him. He just, he's just knows one way of doing things and he hasn't been able to evolve from that. So, yeah, I mean, it's been, look, it's been in this tumultuous era of coaches moving around to have a guy that's been in place for nine years at a club like that. It's refreshing. And I've actually, I like that he's stuck around there, but yeah, it might be getting to a point where, where maybe he does need to go somewhere else. All right. Uh, well, before we uh, take a break and then go over to the other side of the, uh, the champions league uh, quarterfinals um, let's, let's look ahead with the semifinal with RB Leipzig and, and PSG uh, who you got going through and why. A fascinating coaching matchup because, you know, there's a history there. Uh, Nagelsmann played for Tuchel at Augsburg and cites Tuchel as something of a mentor, although I would say the student has surpassed the teacher there because I think Nagelsmann is the better of the two coaches. And uh, listen, I I was way off about the Atletico game. You mentioned that I thought the six-week layoff would would really hurt them, but boy, Nagelsmann had them ready. They played some beautiful stuff, the way they moved the ball around quickly, that midfield Sabitzer, Campo, Olmo, and Kunku, who now faces his former team, PSG. So uh, I think this is like a 50-50 game. I think Leipzig are going to be ready. They're not going to just sit back. They're going to try to be on the front foot too. And for PSG, it sounds like no Verratti, which um, does mean Neymar is again going to have to drop back very deep to get the ball. But Di Maria comes back from suspension, and Mbappe, I suspect, will play from the start, yeah. which does mean, you know, you mentioned this too earlier. For me, the most underrated part of Neymar's game is his passing. And you don't always see it because he can be a bit selfish at times and and try to do it all on his own uh, through dribbling past players. But when he trusts his teammates, he is an amazing passer. Mbappe has come out and said he's the best passer in the world. I'm not sure about that, but he might be second only to Messi in his ability to spot a run that nobody else sees and play a defense splitting ball. So at least with Mbappe and Di Maria on the field, players that are on his wavelength, I think that element of his game might come back too. So it'll be interesting to see how he approaches this. Is he still going to be in the same mode he was in against Atalanta of trying to dribble past everybody? Or is he now going to try to move the ball around quicker and, and, and maybe, you know, play some balls over the top to those guys. So a fascinating game. Like I said, it, it's, uh, if you put a gun in my head, I'd go PSG, but it's not with a lot of conviction because I was very impressed by Leipzig's performance and Nagelsmann. And, and it's, it's, it's going to be a very, very tough game. Yeah, uh, I'm going to go with PSG. Uh, I think they got a, a needed kick in the you-know-what against Atalanta. You mentioned the two players that will be that will be back. And if they put in another performance, by the way, like they put it in against Atalanta, taking out uh, Neymar and what, what he did, Leipzig will make them pay. But I'm still going to go with uh, PSG, which which means that, I mean, this is the promised land for PSG. This is This is what this club has been designed and created and birthed to do <laughs> in the modern form. If they look at the pathway that where they have faltered over the, uh, over the last years, they, they have to still be licking their chops as to, as, as to the path to the final here uh, right now, as they should be, because there's, like you mentioned, there's so much talent out there. And if you got someone like Neymar firing on all, uh, all, cyl- all cylinders, uh, it's going to be fun to watch. All right, anything else uh, on the uh, semifinal? Uh, no, not on that one, no. Okay, uh, we're going to take a little break here, and then when we come back, uh, oh boy, we got, we got Barcelona and, and their, their troubles, uh, and City with, uh, with their loss and troubles too, I guess, uh, when it comes to it. Uh, don't go away. We'll be back in a second. We're just going to take a real quick break here. Moving on. 
With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. All right, we're back, and we're going to look at the other side of the Champions League quarterfinals here. And we're going to start with what will be and go down as one of the craziest and most memorable (laughs) games in Champions League uh, history. And and for a number of reasons, not the least of which is the the scoreline. Ten goals scored, eight for Bayern Munich, and two for Barcelona. Where do I start here, Mossy? Well, I guess from your perspective, does this does this deserve the attention and is it as memorable as I'm making it out to be? Yes, certainly. I mean, we've we've talked at nauseum on this podcast about Barcelona's problems. I don't think there's anybody that's paying attention that thinks this is a club firing on all cylinders. Most of us expected Bayern to beat him and perhaps beat him comfortably, but not eight to two. This is a historic scoreline and that will uh, live on. Listen, I, I, my beloved national team was on the receiving end of something like this back in 2014. And now, I mean, it's, uh, it's something I still hear about all every week. <laughs> so this one will, will live in the memory for sure. It was, uh, I mean, just quickly on the game itself, before we get to the ramifications of the result, you know, it was fascinating to watch because Bayern, as, as you know, from covering them all season, they, they press you ferociously in your own half. And they also play this very high line at the other end. And uh, they're, they're banking on three things. They're banking on the fact that they're going to force enough turnovers that it's going to be worth the trade-off. Also, even if you break their press and you, you put them in some bad situations defensively, they trust that they have enough recovery speed in that back four with Davies and Alaba and even Kimmich, who was started at right back in this game, uh, to be able to mitigate the damage. And also they have the ultimate sweeper keeper, Neuer. We talk about them playing a high line, but they essentially have an extra defender on the field yep. with Neuer. So uh, that's, that's how they play. It can make for some awkward viewing at times. And I'll tell you, the first 15, 20 minutes of that game, uh, the, the, the press really wasn't working that well. Barcelona were breaking through it and creating chance after chance. And that game had kind of this sandlot back and forth feel that you're thinking, boy, is it going to stay like this the whole way? And if so, all bets are off. And, and to their credit, Bayern were able to settle the game down just enough. And, and, and because they're the better team, they took control and they started forcing turnover after turnover and not being so stretched at the other end and, and then just, you know, poured it on. Right. Okay. So four minutes into the game, uh, Thomas Muller, the ageless, I guess, Thomas Miller at this point, it, you know, starts it off and you think, oh, here we go. Um, and like you said, I think that a lot of people, it wasn't a surprise that Bayern Munich beat Barcelona. But having said that, I mean, like you said, 20, 15, 20 minutes into the game, you could actually look at it and Barcelona could have been up three to one. They hit the post. There's a header that went, that goes by. There's the uh, ball that trickles through, uh, uh, you know, across the face of the goal. So there were opportunities, which, you know, I got on, I, I, I was, um, you know, going back and forth with someone on Twitter yesterday about how, you know, they were, they were saying, does this humiliating loss, you know, somehow take away from Messi's legacy? You were talking about the, uh, you know, the Brazilian result and how that just looms large in the Brazilian psyche uh, and how we look at Messi. Uh, Messi. No, I don't, I don't think at all. 
And part of the reason is because that game could have been played after they, after Barcelona lost eight to two and Bayern Munich won eight to two that next day, if they had come back, both teams had come back and played and Barcelona could have beaten Bayern Munich. Okay. Now Bayern Munich's a, a better team, but this is still, this is still Barcelona, which makes, like you said, you know, the, just the, the incredibly lopsided score lines sometimes doesn't always, uh, always tell the story. In this case, it tells the story in that Bayern Munich is a, uh, a, a better team. Don't worry about Messi's legacy. That's, that's, that is assured and that's, that's not a problem. But, you know, the problems that have plagued this, uh, this Barcelona team, you know, that you mentioned from a defensive standpoint, both individually and collectively, the way that they go about, and obviously the reliance on Messi. And there was at no point yesterday necessarily where I thought that Messi was taking over or controlling the game in the way that he can. And the way, by the way, that he will. It was, it was one of those days. Uh, now that's the, the Barcelona side. When it comes to Bayern, you know, we talked about, you know, the fact that there is no rust at all. I mean, this is a well-oiled machine in, in Bayern Munich right now. And, all right, look, we talked about uh, Tyler Adams in the last segment. You know, we got to talk about Alfonso Davies, who at times I've, I've couched everything as arguably the less, le- best left back in the world. He's the best left back in the world, okay? Uh, he had just another highlight-filled type of performance. Talk about players that like to take players on and are looking to take players on. And the system and obviously the talent that surrounds him enables him to do it because, yes, he's a left back in name and he does plenty of defending, but he also just goes and goes. And when you're playing for a team like Bayern Munich that oftentimes has a lot of possession and has the ability to spring you out there, it's great. But he still has a lot of work to do at times. He gets off great crosses and he beats players one-on-one and he was having an absolute field day. And, and I, even, if, even if people, I don't know, who wouldn't know about him, but certainly everybody knew about him or was, uh, or, or was shown how great he was and that he happens to be Canadian, that he happens to be a product of Major League Soccer. Yeah, that's a, that's a source of pride. That's a source of celebration. Absolutely. This is a wonderful story. By the way, even if you take out the, uh, the MLS component of it, it's still an incredible story. If you don't know it, go look it up from where, where he came to where he is right, uh, is right now. And credit to him for his incredible talent that, that he has. And he continues to make an impact in every single game, uh, game that he plays. And it was wonderful to see. Mossy. Yeah, I mean, so much to unpack there. And I, and I still want to discuss Barcelona's problems yeah. a little bit yeah. more. But um, on Davies, uh, I'm with you best left back in the world. Anybody who doesn't think that is living in an ulterior universe. And by the way, that was not an insignificant, uh, the play where he skipped past Semedo and made him look ridiculous and set up Kimmich for the goal. That was not an insignificant play. Uh, It's easy to look back at a game that's eight to two and think, well, how could there have been a quote unquote big goal in that game? But it was four, two at that time, Barcelona had just scored with Suarez. There were still 30 minutes left in the game. And you started to think maybe, you know, crazier things have happened. And then that was the goal that just demoralized Barcelona once and for all for him to do that. And (laughs) for them to score that kind of goal and and Barcelona were out on their feet the rest of that game. So yeah, incredible performance. And by the way, I loved Rummenigge's comment uh, the day before the game where he said, you know, Alfonso Davies, he's not afraid to face Messi. He shut down every player he's come up against this season, and, and Messi will be no problem either. And the, the Twitter went nuts over that. How could you say that about Messi? Even people we work with, like Keith Costigan and Warren Barton, were saying, oh, don't 
don't do that. Don't, uh, you know, tempt Messi like that. You know what? I loved it. Uh, yep. I, I'm tired of opponents genuflecting about Messi's greatness going into these games. That to me was the right attitude. That told me that Bayern were going to go on that field with a swagger and knowing that they're the much better team and Messi or not, like, we're not worried about it. So I had no issue with Ruminiga saying that. I absolutely loved it. And then they, they certainly backed it up. Yeah, and it's amazing with Bayern. This has all come together in a relatively short period of time. You know, people forget last season, Dortmund topped the table for much of the Bundesliga campaign. Probably should have won the title. They kind of fumbled it away. It came down to the very last round. But we all came out of last season thinking that Bayern were perhaps in a little bit of decline. And then they lost the uh, German Super Cup to uh, Dortmund this season, the curtain raiser. And as recently as August, there was a feeling that uh, Bayern hadn't done enough in the transfer market. Guys like Robert Lewandowski and Joshua Kimmich called out the front office publicly and said, well, what are you doing? We need more players here. And then they went out and struck loan deals for Coutinho and Perisic, which kind of reeked of desperation. And they came into the season looking more vulnerable than they ever have before. In fact, on our previous show, uh, Jovan Karofsky picked Dortmund to win the Bundesliga and Keith Koskinen picked Leipzig. And, and sure enough, they did get off to a shaky start. They sacked Kovac after that 5-1 loss to Frankfurt. Uh, and even after Hansi Flick took over and Alfonso Davies was already starting at left back and Thomas Muller was already back in the lineup, in late November, early December, they lost back-to-back -back Bundesliga games to Leverkusen and Gladbach. And 14 rounds into this Bundesliga season, Bayern Munich was in seventh place, if you can believe that. And to go from that to this, they haven't lost the game since. They've been absolutely lights out. And now they're two wins away from uh, completing a treble and going down as one of the greatest teams in recent history. So it's been an absolutely remarkable turn of events here. Yeah, they 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 have to be able to smell that this is in with uh, within reach. We'll talk about the semifinal here in in, uh, in a little bit, but let, let's finish it up with this uh, as we say goodbye to Barcelona. Is this a seminal moment in in the changes that are going to have? You talk about. You know, the uh, you know, Dembele didn't play. Griezmann didn't start. Uh, Coutinho comes on and scores twice, uh, which, is, which is a killer. <laughs> I mean, which is a, an absolute killer. There are problems at Barcelona, problems that most 99% of the clubs around the world would love to have. But there are problems. You know, we heard uh, PK after the game. <laughs> I mean, he wasn't, he wasn't crying or anything, but it was, you know, he was basically affirming that, changes need to be made both on and off the field. Do you think that those changes are going to be made? This is a, this is a super club. Uh, is, this, is this that moment that, that sparks uh, the changes, whether it's political changes in terms of the leadership uh, off the field or actual changes on the field, either bringing people in or, or taking people out? Yeah, um, there, there's, there's a term that's, that's become popular recently, um, super club insularity. And it means that when you're one of the super clubs and have all this money, there's only so much you can screw it up. And in Barcelona's case, not only do they have all this money, but they also have messy papering over the cracks. So you're still going to have domestic success. You're still going to be in the knockout stages of the Champions League um, every season and looking like one of the better teams in Europe every season. So it obscures just how badly uh, the front office has bungled all this. This regime has been an absolute disaster in the transfer market, and, and they can't keep going on like this. You, you mentioned, I know I'm the nine billionth person to make this point, but um, the three biggest signings in club history, and it's, by the way, it's three of the six biggest signings in football history, uh, were at that stadium that day, and none of them were starting for Barcelona. You had, as you mentioned, Griezmann and Dembele on the bench, and then you had Coutinho not even on the team because he was so bad they loaned him out. He's sitting on the bench for the other team. That is remarkable to have 
three players you've signed relatively recently for a combined 400 million euros, and none of them it's worked out to a degree where they would even be starting that game for you. That is, that is astonishing. And, you know, when you, when you look back at this last decade for Barcelona, there have been two different iterations of it. There was the more Pep, tiki-taka approach with Xavi and Iniesta and built around sort of midfield play. And then when they won the treble in 2015 under Luis Enrique, you felt like that team, was, it was a little bit more about that front three with Messi, uh, Neymar, and Suarez, the MSN. And... Uh, in, in, in recent years, they haven't been able to recreate the, the tiki-taka stuff because they haven't found proper replacements for Xavi and Iniesta. Even when they sign players that you kind of think make sense, like Artur and, and Frankie de Jong, they don't seem to be working out anymore. And they haven't even been able to recreate the MSN thing. They've spent, as I mentioned, a combined 400 million euros trying to replace Neymar and trying to find that third guy to form another dynamic front three, and they can't do it. And so... It's been a disaster. And, you know, you, you, you watch that game and you think there is a classy, elegant La Masia product running this game from the midfield, but he's on Bayern. It's Thiago. <laughs> and, you know, you keep going back to that all those years ago. And listen, this was, it was a different regime than the one that's in place right now. But still, I, I, I never tire of telling this story. Um, when Thiago was at, at Barcelona, they gave him a new contract with like a massive buyout number. Uh, but his father, who was a, by the way, a Brazilian World Cup winner who you faced in 1994, a guy by the name of Mazinho, was concerned about playing time. So he inserted a clause in the deal that if Thiago played less than X amount of minutes in La Liga, the buyout number went way down. And that was a season, 2012-13, where they ran away with the La Liga title, clinched the title with several rounds to spare, and they could have easily played him in those last few games and have him hit that minutes threshold. But the coaching staff admitted afterwards they weren't aware of this clause in this contract, and they didn't play him the amount of minutes. He fell just short of it, and it ended up sending his buyout number way down to like 20 million euros. And Pep saw that and said, oh, my God, what a bargain. And Bayern went and got him. And all these years later, there he is, uh, you know, having this great career with Bayern. And now from what you read, he might be off to Liverpool. But uh, in this game, he completely ran the show from the midfield. And Bayern, Barcelona had nobody in their midfield that can do the things that he was doing. So you just keep going back to that Thiago thing. And, and yeah, they've never replaced Xavi and Iniesta adequately. And they've never, they haven't been able to replace Neymar the last couple of years. So it's a mess. And it sounds like they're going to push up the presidential election. So they're going to have a new president soon. They're going to have a new coach soon, Kiki Setien. I'm surprised they even let him on the plane on the flight home. Um, <laughs> and you're hearing that some people want it to be Pochettino. Others want it to be Xavi. Uh, you know, we've, we've talked about this ex-player fetish. I think it's going to end up eventually being Xavi. Um, and, and yeah, and then obviously Messi's future is sort of hanging over all this. So I think this is, this is major crisis moment for Barcelona. It's going to be fascinating to see how the next, uh, weeks and months play out at this club. Oh, you know what, what I have to say about this, Rossi? <laughs> oh, poor Barcelona. I hope they could be okay. Oh my goodness. Uh, and they will be okay. And I, I am, I'm going to be fascinated to see what they what they look like going forward with those changes in terms of the leadership and the uh, and the players on the field. All right, let's uh, let's move on. And I want to be very careful here. Okay, <laughs> Manchester City versus Lyon. I do not want to shortchange Lyon here. Okay, but it is Man City, and and you know Pep has peppered our 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 conversation already in this pod multiple times. That's how big he is. That's how big this club is and I think is going to continue to be, and it wants to be even uh, bigger. Uh, once again, Man City fails. Uh, once again, Pep is accused of overthinking things. Uh, how much of this is true? How much of this is Man City? And how much of this is Lyon? I guess is the question to you. Uh, I think it's, it's, it's mostly Pep and mostly Manchester how? City. Oh my God. Because 
Mona uh, me, come on, buddy. <laughs> no, 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 no. I, I'll redeem myself for that because okay. I have a whole spiel right. on the own as well. Okay. It's funny. I was reading uh, this past week. Four Four Two Magazine puts together a ranking of the best Champions League winning teams. Uh, it there's been 27 editions of the Champions League, and they ranked the 27 winners uh, in order from best to worst. And number one on the list was 2009 Barcelona, which was Pep's first season when they won the the treble, and the, the little blurb for it was kind of interesting because obviously they extolled the virtues of the team and Messi and Xavi and yes, et cetera. But they also had a line in there and they said, and this was also before Pep became a mad scientist and when he would just actually play his best players in big games and play them at their proper positions. And I read that, I'm like, boy, what a little cheap shot at Pep there. But then when the, as soon as the team sheet came out for this game, I thought about that because it's so true. I mean, somewhere along the line, he developed this habit of overthinking these games and this was the worst one. I'm sorry. This is Leon. Uh, you know, put your a normal lineup out there and don't overthink it. Just play your game. You're Manchester City. You're the better team. You should win. If if you put a proper lineup out there and your team has a good enough perf- good performance, like it should be enough. And for him to try to come up with this whole you know back three and Fernandinho and it, and and this unveils this lineup where there's no width and everybody is out of position, looking kind of out of sorts. And he basically gave away the first 60 minutes of that game. I mean, that was not the Manchester City we're used to watching. They created virtually no danger. It wasn't until he brought Mahrez on for Fernandinho that they started to look like uh, Manchester City again. They get the equalizer with De Bruyne. And sure, from that point forward, some wacky things happened that he can't control. There was Lyon's second goal was kind of controversial. Some people think VAR should have wiped it out. Sterling had that incredible miss. And then Ederson is at fault on the last goal. But still, he overcomplicated that game. He, he, he allowed his team to be in a situation where, you know, tied game and 15, 20 minutes left, anything can happen kind of thing, where I think if he had just played it straight from the start, they're the better team, and there's a chance where they, that they would have been in command by that point. Okay. Does this rise to the level of you have to make a change in that, you know, <laughs> once again, he's failed. He's had plenty of money, so that's never been a question. Is Pep a good coach? I understand where you're coming from, and it's not a ridiculous question. I just think it is a ridiculous question, Mossy. <laughs> like, come on, come I, on. I, no, no. I mean, I mean, he's. I definitely don't think they should get rid of him. That's preposterous. Uh, when you, when you look at the way these big clubs operate, it's sort of on parallel tracks. Yes, they care about trophies, but they're actually they're also very cognizant of their brand. Mm-hmm. And he's Bingo. he's done a great job in that regard. They play stylish, beautiful football, and and are you know. He's totally lived up to his promise on that end of things. And, and they've, they've domestically, they've done great. They won back-to-back Premier League titles with 198 points, respectively. That last season, they won the domestic treble, a Premier League FA Cup, League Cup. So, no, no, I mean, he's, he's, he's a great coach, and he's done a great job. But, boy, he does have this one real weakness that, that's, that can be irritating, this penchant for overthinking these big Champions League games. And it, it, it's, it's a real flaw that's, that's hurt his teams and – but don't all geniuses have flaws? Yeah, that, doesn't no, that come with the, the territory? Story, yeah. I mean, somebody asked me that, that specific question, should you change him? And I, I, I agree with you. I, no, you don't make a change. Well, first off, just in general, you don't make a change unless you have somebody better, okay? And somebody better specific to Man City, I, I, I don't know who that is, okay? Because Pep has come in there and he has fundamentally changed and, by the way, improved the style of that, te- of that team, the philosophy of that club, uh, the perception both inside and maybe more importantly globally about the way that we look at Man, uh, Man City. It's not that, that, it's not that they were, weren't well on, that, on their way, 
but he came in and did some very, very uh, different things. It, uh, you know, I said this yesterday that Man City is not Real Madrid or Barcelona yet because that is the goal. That's what they want to be. They want to be this global brand. And it is undeniable that Pep has helped get them closer to that goal. And he has done it in a way that, you know, the way that we think about Cruyff, okay, <laughs> in that he changed the way we watch and ultimately the way the game is played. I think Pep has done, has done that too. You know, and it's not just the tiki-taka thing. It's, it's the playing out of the back. It's the goalkeeper and the importance of the goalkeeper. It's, it's, all, it's all of those different things. Oftentimes we'll refer, you know, I'll, I'll be talking to coaches and they'll say something about Pep. And it's just, it's a Pep type of way of playing. And, and maybe even more importantly, it's, it's a Pep approach to how you view the game. And there can be multiple ways that, that it ultimately comes down to it, but that's how mythic he has become in, in the game. And I, yeah, I don't, I don't think that they, uh, that, that they change. Having said that, Mossy, like you mentioned, the, the puzzling choices when it comes to lineups, especially in big games, <laughs> the incredibly high line that they play. And it's one thing if you have a Neuer back there who's well off his line, uh, and sweeper-keeper type of situation, and you live and die by that. But at times, this was, this was not just risky. This was suicidal at times. There was, there was a time on one play where they went over the top, where Leon went over the top, where it, it looked almost as if Man City was trying to play an offside trap in the opposing half. I mean, it was so high. It was so flat. And it doesn't matter. Even if you have Alfonso Davies back there, nobody is catching uh, with that type of space. So that that was strange. You mentioned the Sterling miss, and you know these games sometimes hinge on on these on these moments because I think that that changes everything. And you would certainly put him in that position, and a hundred times he's going to put that in, and it just it, it sails uh, it sails over. But uh, <laughs> are there? So you don't think that there's ramifications when it comes to the coaching situation? Uh, are there personnel ramifications when it comes to on the field? And that if you're, if you're Pep right now, and by the way, the season's right around the corner. Let's be, let's be honest. What are your priorities? Is it something where you look inward and say, I screwed this up. I had the tools and I just didn't put them in the right place to play. Or, and I know <laughs> in super clubs, this is the tendency. I need better tools or different tools. Well, they already have two coming in in Nathan Ake and uh, Ferran Torres. And Nathan Ake is a move uh, to strengthen that, that defense. So that is an acknowledgement on his part that need to improve there. And I'll tell you, it's, it's not often that I go after a Brazilian like this on this podcast, but they might need to think about upgrading the goalkeeper spot. Uh, I, and I still hear people uh, talk about the fact that, boy, you know, Brazil, a country that's not known for goalkeepers, now they have two of the best in the world in Allison and Ederson. And in Ederson's case, I think he's he's still like living off a reputation from a couple of years ago because he's become very mistake prone. I understand he's great with his feet and he uncorks some of the most beautiful passes you'll ever see a goalkeeper play. So he does give you that dimension. But boy, I mean, the first part of a, a goalkeeper's job is to not let in goals. And Hello, he's yeah. become, <laughs> that's my analysis of the day, but uh <laughs> He's become. No, it's true though. It's true. Yeah, he's become very mistake prone, and he's something of a liability in big games. I mean, to let that a rebound like that and spill that ball right in the path of the Lyon uh, player was Dembele was just terrible. 
and and so uh, so yeah, that's a position where they they might need to perhaps look to upgrade. And by the way, they have an American uh, Zach Steffen uh, in the fold, so who knows? Uh, but uh, no, I, I don't see personnel wise. I don't see drastic changes. I think he'll he'll make some improvements here and there. But I think for the most part, he'll recognize he has the tools there, and he just has to do a better job. Um, so yeah, we'll see. They'll, they'll go at it again next season. Yeah. I, just to clarify, I do think Pep is one of the top coaches in the world. I, I don't want to in any way seem like I'm fuzzy about that. And, All right. And, and All right. Well, let's, uh, he's had well, in the game. let's wrap up this uh, section here, uh, with a look to the semifinal Leon versus Bayern. Uh, I'm going to go out on a limb and say that, uh, I'm going to pick Bayern. Uh, and, well, I'm not going out on a limb saying it. I'm going to, uh, but I am going to go out on a limb and say that you are also going to pick Bayern over Leon, right? Or no? Yes, uh, I think. Uh, listen, there's a school of thought that boy, you, are you guys going to keep counting out Lyon, and, and you know they they locked out Juventus, they knocked out Man City, and in the one domestic game they've played since the restart, they they drew PSG nil nil and lost them on penalties in the French League Cup final. So they've got something of a giant killer thing going here. Um, uh, but I think this is a bridge too far. I think this Bayern team is going to be too much for them. But if if it goes that way, it means this will be the last time we'll be able to speak about Lyon. So I, I do want to give them credit. Uh, just a, a wonderful, likable club. I like everything about them. Uh, I've always respected Jean-Michel. You know, before this whole super club era, Lyon was the team. He built a team in the 2000s that won seven straight league on titles. And that was the record for most consecutive titles in Europe's uh, top five leagues. But now it's been obliterated in the super club era where Bayern have won eight in a row and Juventus have won nine straight but uh you know this the super club era came along and psg have become this monolith and so uh they don't have much of a realistic shot at winning uh domestic league titles anymore plus they had to take a step back for a few years because they were paying for this new stadium uh but here they are back again it's such a smartly run club they have a great youth system they they manage the transfer market really well you look at this midfield three they have with uh, uh awar and bruno guimarães and kakere uh, all three so talented great future ahead of them so uh, there's so much to like and respect about how Lyon go about their business and, and, and to get to a Champions League semifinal is a great achievement for them. Like I said, I think it's a bridge too far. I think they lose to Bayern, but it wouldn't surprise me. I don't think they lose eight two. let's put it that way. I wouldn't surprise <laughs> me if they give a good account of themselves and make this a tougher game than people realize, but ultimately I expect Bayern to win and get to the final. All right. So those semifinals are next week, right? Masi? Oh, what, uh, what are the days? Do we know the days on this? Uh, so the, uh, yes, it's uh, Tuesday is the uh, PSG Leipzig and Wednesday is uh, Leon Bayern. Leon Bayern. Okay. Well, we will check those out uh, on uh, whatever platform it is that you are watching out there and uh, can't wait. All right. Um, anything else, Musi? I, I see uh, you last raising thing, your hand. Just to tag okay. this segment. Uh, Europa League has some real juice right now. We, we can't really talk about it because we're taping this on a Sunday and one of the games is today and one is tomorrow. So whatever we said would be kind of dated, but the uh, fun semifinals, you've got uh, Manchester United Sevilla in Cologne today. I can't wait to watch that game right after we're done taping. And then, uh, and then tomorrow, which would be Monday, the day this podcast drops, uh, is uh, uh, Inter against Shakhtar and Dusseldorf. Shakhtar, who, you know, I, obviously one of my favorite teams because they have 13 Brazilian-born players in the squad. <laughs> uh, and then the winners there meet in the final in Cologne. Uh, so excited for both games and, and whatever matchup it ends up being will we'll make for a fun final. So Europa League has some real juice right now, too. Cool. All right. Uh, we're going to take a real quick break here. And then when we come back, uh, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, it's coming. Uh, the Ask Alexi segment of our show. So don't go away. Uh, moving on.
All right, we're back and uh, we're going to hit up some uh, Ask Alexi questions, comments, concerns out there when you've used that hashtag, either Ask Alexi or Ask Mossy out there on all the different social media platforms and we, we call through them and figure out uh, some good ones to pick. Mossy, what do we got this week in terms of what the people want to know? Uh, first up, at BTL Bets, uh, thoughts on beginning the season with a tournament going forward? I like the idea. This is referring to the MLS's back tournament, uh, which was a success uh, and, and uh Congratulations to Portland. They defeated Orlando in the final. And people were so uh, taken by this competition that there's now a real sentiment to make it an annual thing. And, and some people have proposed making it a sort of quasi preseason tournament, something you hold before the MLS season gets underway. Your thoughts? I thought that the MLS's back tournament was an undeniable success um, in a very challenging type of situation, both on and off the field in terms of the organization, uh, and in terms of the excitement and the ultimate moment when Portland, congratulations to Portland, uh, were the champions. It is something to celebrate and it was, it was fun to see. Um, but I also feel like it was unique. It was, uh, an anomaly in that I, I think it's going to be hard in quote unquote quote unquote, normal times, not, not just to repeat it, but to have the same type of interest and impact that this, that this had. I don't quite know how you would do it. Um, you know, we've, in the past, back before many of you listeners were, were around, most of the teams would go to one place down in Florida. A lot of teams would go down there and you would, you would play these. So to formalize that more, you, you could certainly do that and have it be much more of a glorified preseason type of tournament. But part of what made this interesting was that the games mattered and that it wasn't, they weren't scrimmages. It wasn't a, a preseason. So while, while I loved the bubble and, and what it represented, I almost want it to be unique. I almost want it to be a standalone that came and went and will forever be remembered. Because and part of it is that I just don't know how you would go about doing this BTL bets. Uh, thank you for your question. You know, the beginning of the season, yeah, I, I guess you could do it. Um, like I said, for a, a preseason type of thing. But nowadays, most of the MLS teams, they go all over the world uh, for their preseason. So having them all come to one place, uh, while it might be a, a good entertainment type of thing, I'm not sure that all coaches and, and clubs would necessarily want to uh, want to do that. So uh, look, I, if you if they're going to do it, fine. I just don't know how it gets done where it has the same type of uh, impact. And if you can't do it where it doesn't mean something uh, and mean as much, if if not more, then I don't I don't know why you'd do it. Mossy, anything on this before we uh, move on to the next question? <laughs> no, uh, uh, just one postscript to last week's pod. Uh, uh, last week I alluded to uh, an essay you had written uh, about the MLS's back tournament. And the person that collaborated with you on that uh, uh, project, uh, who's an avid listener of this podcast, uh, was very offended that we didn't mention his name and give him a shout out. Uh, his name is Adam Inman. And uh, so I, I do want to recognize that uh, for people who know the essay I'm referring to and liked it, uh, the words came from Alexi, but the images and the music came from an employee at Fox called Adam Inman. So there you go. You've got your shout out. Adam Inman. Uh, <laughs> this is a incredibly intelligent, good-looking, creative, impressive human being for anybody out there that comes in contact with this human being. Um, you, you should, you know, 
count you, count yourself lucky to have been in contact with this person. How's that? Was that good? Is that is he, is, is he gonna like that? <laughs> Alex Dowd cringing right now. He hates these shout outs. He does. Particularly uh, to people who he feels are below his level. So. Right. I know. Well, he can cut this out, right? Um, uh, I know. Uh, it was. If if please accept my apologies. If if we inferred that that I was doing this. I mean, I, I just wrote some words out there. As is often the case, those of us in front of the camera, uh, the only reason that we look or sound good, and Mossy can attest to this, is because of the incredible intellect uh, and creativity of all the men and women that on a continual basis prop us, uh, prop us up and make us, uh, make us look good. All right, next question, Mossy. At Tai Tai Mighty 01, who will be the Miami guy Beckham brings in eventually um, so, uh, another postscript to last week's pod, uh, we both, uh, analyzed the Blaise Matuidi signing and, and lots of other people did too, to be fair. It was initially reported that it was a DP signing. So we analyzed it from that perspective. And while we both thought it made some footballing sense and that he'll be a good player for them as a DP signing, he said, well, I mean, it doesn't really move the needle. Well, we've come to find out that it was actually a TAM signing, which, uh, I already thought was a, was a good move to get him. And now I think it's even, even better. Uh, and so they still have that third DP slot left right now. Rodolfo Pizarro and Matias Pellegrini are their two DPs. And so now talk is turned again to who might be that big splashy uh, DP signing that Inter Miami finally are able to pull off. Do you have any thoughts on who you'd like to see it uh, be? Uh, God, who's available now? What are we looking at now, Masi? I mean, it's got to be a goal scorer. It's got to be, you know, somebody up top. You know, all the names that have come uh, come along over the uh now it's been years, let's be honest. I mean, who's, who's available now, Masi? Is Cavani still available, or what are we talking about? Cavani, Bale, James, these types of players? Is that what is, is these? Well, Cavani uh, looks about as great right? Fica. Jorge Jesus is building quite the team there. He also got uh, Everton, a Brazilian player I really like. Uh, but um, uh, listen, the Madrid media for the longest time thought it would be Luka Modric. They kept saying mm, Luka Modric was going to go to Miami to play for... It's funny how every reference is for Beckham's team. <laughs> you know? I, I, that's what I told you. I said, and, you know, uh, that's, that's what it's going to be, as it, sh- as it should be. I mean, somebody yeah. that high profile, and it puts uh, added lately expectation. Lately, I'm hearing a lot of Luis Suarez, uh, which would fit your goal score. Uh, Did uh, score a really nice goal uh, the other day. I mean, yeah, yeah, it'll yeah. get lost in time, but it was, a, it was a really nice goal. Yeah, I mean, it... it it has to be big, okay? They've set themselves up. As you mentioned, the Matuidi thing now being Tam makes a whole lot more sense. And you, you definitely do that. Um, but now it still opens you up and it, it prolongs the hope that they are going to, be, to do something and that they, they have to do something. You, you mentioned it is David Beckham's Inter-Miami and with that comes much higher expectations. And everybody's kind of waiting for that big signing. And if they, if they fail to do that, I think, it, I think it hurts and I think it makes them look bad. Any of those players that we talked about, I think would, would fit the bill uh, right now. What would be interesting is if they completely buck what, what a lot of us assume is going to happen and go a more Atlanta United route and go and get and spend a, spend a lot of money, maybe even more money than they would spend and go get someone who's up and coming, but that we don't necessarily uh, know a whole lot about and kind of do a uh, Miguel Almiron uh, type, of, uh, type of scenario out there. Um, I don't know if Miami, given what Miami is at this point, can, can do that. 
but I wouldn't put it past them. Um, all right. What's that? What else, Mossy? And finally, at Ken Kamara, uh, should McKinney go to the English Premier League? I think he, whether he should or not, it depends. And we've talked about this before, where he goes. All right. Not all English Premier League's uh, teams are created equally. And so it's got to be a step up. I do think that in the psyche of Weston McKinney, just being in the, in the Premier League is a, is a step up. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think, I think he, he needs to satisfy what is obviously a dream, what is obviously something that he wants, what, what is obviously something he puts on a pedestal. I think he has always looked at the Bundesliga, and this isn't a, a knock, because uh, a lot of players are doing that, looked at Bundesliga as a, a stepping stone in order to get him to realize that lifelong dream of playing in the EPL. At, uh, and, and that's that's okay. That's a, that's a good thing. So yes, I think he should go play in the EPL. I think his mind is almost already there. And look, he's got a history when it comes to the to Bundesliga and to, and to Germany. So he'd be fine there. And if he stayed in Germany, if we were to upgrade, and I think Herfler would have been, would have been an up, upgrade, but, you know, he and his representation, you know, they got to figure out that, that wherever he's going is a better situation than he is in right now. And not just, not just money. Money's, money's huge and money's important and all, but not just uh, for money. Because sometimes the grass isn't always, uh, always greener. Mossy, anything? Yeah, I mean, the two clubs that have been mentioned so far for him are Hertha Berlin and Monaco. And both feel kind of sideways-ish to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, I agree with you. Hertha Berlin, um, they, they have a, a new investor there. Uh, this past January, they spent more money than any, uh, any other club in Europe and bringing guys like Piatek and, and Mateus Cunha. They had a pretty good second half of the season. And, and they have a solid coach in Bruno Labbadia. And there's a sense that they're a club that's trending in the right direction. Um, and, and Monaco, ironically, brought in the coach that people thought was going to end up at Hertha Berlin and Nico Kovac. And, and they, too, feel more ambitious than what Schalke are right now, and, and there's more of an upside there. But still, neither one of those, um, you know, to, to use a term we use often on this podcast, really moves the needle for me. I feel like if, if McKinney's going to leave Schalke, it's going to be to move up a level. And I'm not sure going to Hertha Berlin or Monaco, he's really moving up a level in the grand scheme of things. So, yeah, I think he is going to look to the Premier League, and absolutely he would be uh, a useful player uh, for, for a, a top half of the table table team in the Premier League. I think McKinney would, would be a good fit in the Premier League. Um, and I also do want to mention another uh, American Bundesliga player, uh, Gio Reyna, getting uh, a lot of uh, good publicity for a good start to the preseason. And Lucien Flav has really been talking up what a big role he's going to have uh, this upcoming campaign. Although I will say, I'm very interested to see how this is going to shake out for Dortmund because uh, there's potentially an incredible glut of attacking players and an incredible glut of young players. Uh, with each passing day, it looks like Sancho is going to stay. So you're going to have Sancho, Holland, uh, Reyna. They spent 25 million euros on this teenage uh, Englishman, Jude Bellingham, where everybody's saying is like the next Sancho. They're very close from what you read to uh, uh, completing a loan deal for this Brazilian 18-year-old Henier who from Real Madrid, a player Real Madrid spent 30 million euros on. He's very talented, but they don't have an EU spot for him. And he's made much too good for Castilla. So they want to send him out on loan. Leverkusen and Sociedad also interested, but it looks like it's going to be Dortmund. So that's another guy for Reina to compete with. And there's this kid, Yusufa Mukoko, who's this 15-year-old phenom who, as soon as he turns 16 in November and is eligible, you have to be 16 to even play in the Bundesliga, yep. people are saying he's going to shoot right up to the first team and, and, and be in the mix. 
And so that's a lot of guys. I know Dortmund uh, don't mind giving minutes to young players, but boy, that's a lot of young players. And never mind Thorgan Hazard and Julian Brandt and Marco Royce if he ever comes back from injury. So boy, th- this is uh, Gio Reyna. Like I said, they love him and all, all it's very optimistic, everything you read, but he's going to have a lot of competition for minutes on his hands this season. That's good. That's a good thing. <laughs> okay, before we uh, we finish off, because we're done here with Ask Alexi, right, Mossy? Yep. Okay, before we finish off, uh, I just want to <clears throat> coda something here, because uh, for those of you that follow us, uh, in, you know that we, we will sometimes take out uh, little uh, audio video clips and put them out there on social media. And one that went out last week was uh, about my uh, my response to uh, Cristiano Ronaldo crying uh, after bombing out of the Champions League. And I said, uh, you can listen to it, but among other things, I said it didn't endear me in that moment to him and that I cringed a little bit uh, at seeing that. And people, whoo, people took issue with that, my friend, Monsi. People were not happy. First off, it involves Cristiano Ronaldo. And anytime you do anything that involves Cristiano Ronaldo or Messi, uh, the people come... Uh, come calling. I, I want to be, you know, very, very, very clear. Uh, first off, I'm not, I'm not apologizing for anyone, but you know, my reaction to that, okay, was only to say that I don't have to be moved or or relate to something like that. And if that is my reaction to a player crying, and, and I explained why I wasn't moved. But if that is my reaction, that doesn't necessarily make me, which is what I've been accused of, any less competitive or passionate uh, or invested in the game. Uh, And, you know, the passion police were out in force about, you don't understand. First off, you've never played in the Champions League. Absolutely. I've never played in the Champions League. Uh, I played in Naperville. But I, it, it doesn't, just because somebody doesn't cry okay, after a hard loss, okay, that doesn't mean that they don't have the same competitive juices uh, or they don't have the same fire or they don't take it as seriously as somebody else. I think that that's incredibly simplistic uh, when it comes to this, uh, this type of situ- situation. And you can be affected any different way as a player in a high pressure type of, uh, type of situation. I just wanted to... Uh, make that um uh, make that clear because it was it was it was kind of amusing actually the the uh, avalanche of responses in, in all different directions when it came to you know how i was affected by seeing uh something uh, something like that and a lot of it is is steeped in the fact that you know that that insecurity and that inferiority complex that we talk so much about and that this was coming from uh, an American, obviously this is coming from an American who had not played in Champions League and how, therefore, because I am not from some other country uh, or culture, I can't possibly fathom the depths of the fire and the emotion and the passion that is associated with this, uh, with, with this game that I and we know, uh, we know and love, which always makes me, talk about what makes me cringe, actually makes me laugh a little bit, but that, uh, that, was, that was out in force when it came to uh, my, uh, my response to Cristiano uh, Ronaldo. Hope he's okay. I think he's going to be fine. Um, Mossy, anything before we uh, finish this up? That is it. All right. At the end of each and every pod, as you know, I give you my one for the road. Mossy, uh, last week, I uh, decided to take my son 
to fish. He loves to fish. And so we went out and did some, uh, some deep sea fishing off the coast here in, uh, in Los Angeles. Uh, it's obviously been affected as everything has been by the shutdown and by COVID uh, and by the pandemic. And it was a boat that normally holds, gosh, about 80 people and it's chartered twice a day. It goes out and it was down to you're only allowed to have half, which would give you 40, obviously. And this was down to like maybe 30, 25, 30 people that were actually on the boat. And these are, these are hardcore fishermen and women. These are people that do this on a continual basis, that are steeped in the culture. Um, and this, this is not for the faint of heart. Uh, having said that, the experience that we had was incredible in that even though we were surrounded by all of these people who had so much more experience than us who knew so much more about fishing and in this and in this process than us the staff and the people involved couldn't be more inviting and couldn't have been more welcoming to me and my son in terms of helping us teaching us and yes we were paying them and you know that's customer service. I get that, but it, it made me think of the American soccer community out there because this experience on this boat could very easily have been intimidating uh, and overwhelming, and then ultimately not a positive type of experience. And it wasn't because everybody on that boat recognized that you got to start somewhere. And me and my son. It's not as if we haven't fished before, but certainly not to the level of them, that we were being brought into that tent. And I talk a lot about the American soccer tent and, and what it is and what it isn't and how we can't afford, as the American soccer community, to shut anybody out. We can't afford to have it be so intimidating or overwhelming because of our snobbery or our elitism when it comes to the game that it turns people off. And at times, unfortunately, I do see that. Um, it's, not, it's, you know, it's not rampant, but it is there. And we have to guard, and I include myself in this, we have to guard against that. Because the last thing that we can afford to do or that we want to do is have people that want to enjoy this game. And maybe you're coming at it uh, you know, from, a, from a place of very little experience and knowledge or they're coming at it very, very late in life or, or farther along in life in that they haven't been steeped in it, they haven't grown up with it. We, we can't afford to do anything that is going to make that tent not be inviting or not be welcoming. And um, I was just struck by how, you know, it applies to fishing <laughs> and it applies to soccer. And there's a lot of people out there that go, above and beyond uh, the call of duty to make it inviting. And that's, that's what's going to drive this game. That is what is going to make us into a stronger American soccer nation uh, with, you know, with passion and with emotion uh, and with incredibly diverse and uh, deep culture when it comes to it. It's bringing everybody in and making it accessible to as many different people as possible. And 
I hope that we continue to do that where we are doing it. And I hope that we recognize individually and collectively when we aren't doing it and realize how detrimental it can to be, it can be to the growth of the sport that we all uh, know and love. And it's always going to be uniquely American. That's nothing to apologize for. Uh, it's actually something to celebrate because I think in doing so, we can create something the likes of which the world has never seen. All right, Mossy, anything, uh, anything else, my friend? That is it. All right. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much uh, for tuning in and listening and watching. Thank you so much for writing and reviewing and subscribing to the uh, State of the Union pod out there on all the different platforms that uh, you get your, uh, your pod. Please send us uh, any questions that you have, any Ask Alexi questions, any Ask Mossy questions, either on Twitter or, uh, or Facebook or uh, Instagram or any other platform that you have out there. And uh, each and every week we pull a couple of them, uh, a couple of them out. Uh, we're looking to do some some new and interesting things with the pod going forward. We're looking to add some things going forward. I see Mossy turning, looking, going, wait, what are you talking about? Don't worry, Mossy. I'll, 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 let, you in. I'll let you I'll let you in on a little on, on some things going forward, but uh, not, not quite yet, but it's, uh, but, but it's going to happen. You, you know, you got to be able to bob and weave. You got to be able to grow. Uh, we are nothing if we were not growing and evolving. And I like to think that we, uh, that we all are. Hope everybody is staying safe uh, and sane in these uh, interesting times and, uh, I do believe that uh, uh, this too shall pass. And uh, here's to much better days ahead uh, when it comes to what's happening both on and off the soccer field. All right, we'll talk to you again uh, next week. And as always, size the day. <laughs>